Uh, my name's JP. I'm the senior pastor at Avon Park. Uh, my, my boss, uh, Steve Jenks, asked me if I would take the opportunity to come out and visit with you and share a message, so here I am. And uh, I'm really grateful to be here. As a matter of fact, before I came here to Florida, I was in Southern New England Conference. I pastored the Village Church there uh, on the campus of Atlantic Union College. Anybody know what I'm talking about? AUC? Oh, there's people who remember. Uh, you know, I'm, because it's closed now, it, which is sad. But uh, yeah, I went to school there. I graduated from AUC with my uh, bachelor's in theology and then pastored the Village Church just recently. But uh, Arturo and I, we were... Um, colleagues, and we also worked in young adults at camp meeting together, and um, I was, when I was younger, I was uh, actually youth pastor at the college church, and I pastored his sister, Karina Proust, so yeah, I know them really well. I know the family, I know Art, and you're getting a great pastor, uh, so congratulations to you. He is, uh, he's going to be a real blessing here. Um, you know, I'm going to be sharing my testimony, but I, I want to share uh, a little bit to build up to it. And uh, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of John chapter 19. Now, I hope that you brought your Bible. I, I'm one of those old-fashioned preachers. I preach from the Bible. So if you have your Bible, that's great. Uh, John chapter 19 is where we want to be. And we're going to start reading with verse 5, and we're going to read through verse 7. John chapter 19, beginning with verse 5 and reading through verse 7. And I'll give you a chance to get there. I'm not, I try not to be one of those pastors that tells you to turn there and then I'm finished reading before you even find it. So I'll give you a moment. John chapter 19, we're going to begin reading with verse 5. Once I hear most of the pages stop rustling, uh, we'll read. And um, we're going to be talking about the cross. I want to give you a little different perspective on the cross. Uh, maybe one that you haven't seen before. And I always like to do that when I preach to share something just a little bit fresh with you, something new. So the Bible says, Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man! Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! What did they cry out? Crucify him! So they wanted him to be crucified, obviously. Now, Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him. I don't find any fault. He hasn't broken any Roman law that he was aware of. There's no law that's been broken. Pilate says, I have no reason to condemn him to death. Verse 7, the Jews answered him and said, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die. Now, basically the Jews are saying he broke a Jewish law. Okay, well, what Jewish law do they claim that Jesus broke? They said, because he made himself the Son of God. Now, I don't expect always that someone will know this answer, but I always like to ask, so what Jewish law are the chief priests and scribes, what, are the, what law are they claiming that he broke? Thank you, blasphemy. Now, blasphemy is when you claim to be God. So if I were to stand up here and say, I'm God, which I'm not, please do not quote me on that. But if I were to do that, I would be breaking the law of blasphemy. Very good. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to go to the Old Testament, and we're going to look at what the Bible says is the penalty for blasphemy. So we want to go in our Bibles to the book of Leviticus chapter 24 in verse 16. Leviticus chapter 24 
and verse 16. Now, Leviticus is in the Old Testament, and if you go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, so third book of the Bible. If you go to the beginning, you'll find it the easiest. Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 16. Again, I'll give you a moment to turn there. Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 16. Now, remember, what we're trying to understand is what does the Bible say is the penalty for blasphemy? Here, we're going to find that in Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 16. All right, the Bible says, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall certainly be put to death. All the congregation shall crucify him. Is that what your Bible says? No. What do you mean? What, what, is your, what version of the Bible do I have? Hold on. New King James. What do you have? You have a New King James. So I obviously read it. What does your Bible say? Shall certainly stone him. So the penalty for blasphemy in the Bible is that you get stoned to death. Are, are, are you with me? Not crucifixion. Now, you might think, well, the scribes and Pharisees, these people, maybe they just forgot, right? It's possible they, they didn't even know their own rules or laws, right? Maybe they got their Bible mixed up. So, so but you know, it's not true. In the book of John chapter 10, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And the Bible says that they picked up stones immediately to stone him. Did they know their own law? They did. So here is the magic question. If they know that the penalty for blasphemy is being stoned to death, the question is, why did they want him to be crucified? That's the question. Why is it that they wanted him to die hanging on a cross? They could have asked Pilate for him to die by stoning. They could have asked for anything, but they specifically were screaming out and crying, crucify him, crucify him. Rome did not choose the penalty. The Jews did. The question is, why? Why did they want him to die on a cross? Turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 21, an obscure Old Testament law that most people don't even realize is there, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22. Now, Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible, so if you are in Leviticus, just pass by Numbers, and then Deuteronomy is what we're looking for. Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 22. We're going to read 22, 23, and 24. We're going to right to the end of the passage, but we're looking for Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22. The question is, why did the Jews want him to die by crucifixion? They chose the penalty. Why were the chief priests, the scribes, these religious leaders, why were they choosing that specific method of death? The Bible says in Deuteronomy 21, 22, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is what? Is cursed of God. Is cursed of God. Now, part of this whole 
understanding of what the Old Testament is teaching here is that when someone is hanged on a tree, this was very common practice in the old days. Um, the, 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 the heathen people around Israel, if they defeated you, they would take your leader and they would usually hang them from the wall. Even though they're dead, they would hang their dead body on the wall, the wall to the city. So as you're walking in with your children, there would be dead bodies hanging on the wall, people who rebelled against the empire, people who were punished, and that was kind of a sign. Now, the Romans did something very similar. They would put up crosses all along the road. Now, the people were still alive while they were hanging on the cross, so as you're walking along, they're crying out, help me, Uh, you know, they would be in pain. But the, but the heathen nations, they would hang dead bodies on their wall. God says, you're not going to be like them. You're not going to leave those dead bodies there a long time. If you're going to hang the body, for, you hang it only for that day. When it becomes night, you bury them. God didn't want children having to see that kind of stuff in Israel, right? I, I, I kind of like the idea that God is understanding and merciful uh, you know, in, in his justice. But the Bible says that they could, as an example, hang the dead body in a tree for a time, and if they did that, that person would be cursed. Now, what does it mean to be cursed of God? I'd like you to think for a second with me. Consider this. What does it mean to be cursed? I'll tell you a story. Let's just say two men come before a judge. They've both done wrong. The first man comes before the judge, and he kneels down before the judge and says, Judge, I messed up. You know, my neighbor came over the house, and, and, and I was mad at him because his cat was um, peeing in my flower bed again, and I was just so angry, and I happened to have my axe in the hand, and we got into a fight about his cat, and we started wrestling, and my axe hit his head. I didn't really mean to kill him. I feel terrible about it. I'm really sorry. The judge says, I condemn you to death. Even though you're sorry, the law is if you kill someone, you have to pay with your life. You're going to be put to death, okay? And he senses him to death by stoning. The man is feeling terrible about what he did. He kneels down and says, God, you know, I messed up. I killed a man. I I shouldn't have done that. My anger got away from me. Please forgive me. Please remember me in the kingdom. And guess what? That person, even though they're Penalty is death, even though they're going to be stoned to death, they have hope of eternal life, right? To be raised in the resurrection, amen? A second man comes. This, this person's not repented at all, spitting curses and angry. He's done horrible things. Uh, he, he was a serial uh, rapist uh, and, and, you know, a terrible person, right? Not sorry for what he did. He's foaming at the mouth and screaming obscenities. And the judge says, what you have done It never should have been done in Israel. You are a wicked person. You're terrible. And I sentence you to die by hanging in a tree. Now, what does that mean? It means that person is cursed of God. Even if they pray and say, God, forgive me, God will not forgive. When you were sentenced to die hanging in a tree, it meant that you were sentenced to die what we call the second death. That you are going to wake up in the resurrection with the wicked. Even if you pray, even if you say, God, forgive me, God is not going to hear you because you're cursed of God. So therefore, you have no hope of eternal life. That death, to be sentenced to die by hanging in a tree, was a death sentence that was terrible to hear. It meant that you were condemned to eternal death, to wake up in the second resurrection and then to die in the lake of fire. Are you, are you seeing the difference? So then, 
the question would be, why would those scribes, those Pharisees, those religious leaders, why would they want Jesus to die on a cross? Because they saw it as a tree. Uh, so certainly in the New Testament, if you look at Acts chapter 5, Peter actually refers to it, that Jesus died in a tree. They understood what the Bible taught. Those New Testament uh, scholars and Paul, and we're going to see it in a moment, they understood that concept. Jesus dying on a cross meant that he died on a tree. Even if the tree is dead, he's still dying in a tree. And if Jesus dies in a tree, then he is cursed of God. And if he's cursed of God, God will not hear his prayers. Not a trick question, but consider for a moment did God hear Jesus' prayer while he was hanging on the cross? It's not a trick question, but just think about it. Do you remember his words? He said, my God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. Was God listening to his voice while he was hanging on a tree? No. He was cursed. Jesus prayed. And God would not hear his voice. Why? Because he was hanging in a tree. And if you are hanged in a tree, your body shall not remain there overnight. But when sundown comes, your body should be taken down. What happened to Jesus? Before the sun went down, what did they do with his body? They took it down from the tree and they buried him. They, they obeyed the law. Jesus dying on a cross meant that he was forsaken of God, that he was condemned to die the second death, and there would be no ear of God to hear his cries for forgiveness, if there were any. Oh, the religious leaders, they were excited because it meant that the people looking at Jesus on the cross, they would think to themselves, how could he be the Messiah if he's cursed by God? You see? That was the whole plan. They wanted him hanging on that tree. They wanted him to be cursed. But what you don't realize is that God wanted him there also. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. Galatians is in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians. And right after 2nd Corinthians is Galatians. We want Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10, just in case you think that I'm making this up, because a lot of times when I preach this, even though we're Seventh-day Adventists, a lot of people don't realize that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he didn't die the first death of falling asleep, he died the second death. He died eternal separation from God. God would not hear his voice, he was condemned to death, he was cursed of God on the cross. The book of Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10 is what we're going to begin reading. Galatians chapter 3 verse 10. The Bible says, For as many as are of the works of the law, they are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. According to the Bible, if you do not continue in everything that is written in the law, you are under a curse. Are you with me? If you break the God's law, God's rules, God's um, divine character, his plan. If you do not follow everything written in the law, you are cursed. How many are cursed here today? Five of you. The rest of you are amazing people. Let's try it again. Do you understand that to not raise your hand, 
You have to have had never disobeyed God's word or commandments in your entire life, not even once. Are you with me? All right. Is there anybody here that is under a curse? Everybody. Nobody can claim that they have never broken God's word or God's law. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us in the book of Romans chapter 3 that all have fallen short of His glory. So no one can claim to be free from breaking God's law. We are all under the curse. That is the point of what Paul is making. Verse 11, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law does not, is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. He continues and he begins to explain, and he's getting theological here, but he's simply saying that we cannot be saved by keeping the law because we've all broken the law. Are, are you with me? That's why we have to be saved by faith through grace. Amen? Because we've all fallen short, the only thing that can save us is grace. Obedience to the law cannot save a human being. Verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Does that look familiar to you? That's Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22. Paul is quoting it here. And he literally says that Jesus became the curse that we deserve for breaking the law, for falling short, for sinning. The curse that is on us, Jesus took that upon himself. And what do we deserve? We deserve death. Not just falling asleep, we deserve eternal death, separation from God forever, the lake of fire. That's what we deserve. But because of the love of God, he sent his son to die the death that we deserve. And the death that we deserve is the second death. Goodbye to life forever. That's what we deserve. That curse is ours. But Jesus took it upon himself. Separated from his father. You know, if you read in the book of Desire of Ages, Ellen White says that he barely felt the physical pain. I always wondered about that. He was crucified. It was an awful way to torture someone. How could he not feel the physical pain? Because the separation from his father, that second death, is, was way worse when it came to what we call torture. It was torture of his soul and his mind that God would not hear him. Disconnected from his father, which he'd been one with his father from ages eternity past, now separated from his father, the, the torture that it was, horrible. That's the love of God. So let me take it one step further, just a little bit further. So she also says, <laughs> and this, I think this is powerful also, in that same passage in the Desire of Ages on the cross, that he could not see beyond the portals of the tomb. In other words, when he was dying on the cross, sin was so heinous, so terrible, the weight of it was so great that he, in his mind, thought, there is no resurrection from me, for me, because I've prayed to the Father, I've cried out, he's not listening to me. Maybe after the three days, even though he quoted and said in three days, I'll be raised, when he was on the cross, it was so horrible, the weight of it was so terrible that he could not see himself coming from the tomb victorious. He thought in his mind, I'm going to die forever and I'm never going to see life. And he didn't get down. He loved us so much 
that he was willing to die forever if, he, if we could be there, even if it meant that he wouldn't be. Although heaven wouldn't be heaven without him. Uh, right? Heaven isn't mansions. Heaven isn't golden streets. Heaven is Jesus. What love. What love. And, that's, and I'm opening with this uh, theological uh, Bible thought because that love is what impacted my life. I didn't grow up in the church. I grew up in Connecticut, um, but I, I didn't grow up a churchgoer. My parents were hippies, and, you know, they, they come from Catholic backgrounds on both sides, but they were never really involved in church. They rejected church. And so I grew up in kind of a partying atmosphere, drugs, alcohol, weekend uh, parties. And as I was growing up, on Sunday mornings, I would wake up and go down, and I would test things that we would drink out of the cups, my brother and I. I kind of remember us trying stuff or smoking what they smoked or trying to, you know, act like adults and, you know, drinking things. And that's how we grew up. And by the time I was in the fifth grade, I was already starting to bring drugs to school. I was already starting to hang out with the wrong kids. By the time I was in seventh and eighth grade, I was getting into trouble a lot. I was skipping school. And by the time I was in my early, uh, you know, high school years, ninth and tenth grade, I was getting into a lot of trouble. I don't glorify that life uh, because, because Jesus is the one I want to glorify. Um, I, I, to give you just an example so that you can get a picture of how bad I was, I was grounded for an entire year. Now, you, I mean, we ground our kids for a week, right? Uh, maybe a month, a month seems like a lot. I was grounded for an entire year. And it was because I had jumped out the window and ran away from home and was out partying all night. And then I didn't come home for several days. And so when I did come home, they were really angry, you know, nailed my window shut and then grounded me. And grounding for me, I don't know what grounding was for you, like no TV, but grounding for me was I had to sit at the kitchen table all day with my hands on the table like this for an entire year. I had to do my homework there. I had to sit there during the summer. I couldn't go outside and play. I literally for an entire year sat at the table with my hands on the table. I deserved it. Don't get me wrong. I was bad, <laughs> but... but the day that I got off my one year being grounded, I went out with my friends and I drank so much that I blacked out. They carried my body to the high school and then when I did wake up, they convinced me to run onto the football field on a Friday night football game in my town without any clothes on. I was suspended from school because I was on school grounds and I was junk, drunk and I was... Um, I was uh, grounded for another year. So I was actually grounded two years straight. I've never heard of anybody else that I've ever met being grounded for two years with one day off in the middle, but I am that person. I was bad. I was bad. When I was a junior in high school, I had long hair, tie-dye shirt, ripped jeans. I went into the school and uh, that day, and Jason Deary, my friend, came up to me and said, hey, man, I said, what's up? What are we doing tonight? And he says, listen, I, I want to hang out, but there's this thing I want to do after school is over. I said, what do you want to do? He says, I want to try out for the school play. And I said, why? And he said, because I think it would be kind of fun. Wouldn't it be funny if we went in there and just did the thing that they want us to do? I'm like, do you like that stuff? He's like, why not? Why, why not try it? Will you come with me? I don't want to go alone. 
I'm like, no, man, that's dumb. And he's like, what are you, chicken? I'm like, all right, fine, I'll go with you. So at the end of school, we go get in line, and I stand on the stage, and they tell me to sing something, and I sing something, and they tell me to say something, and I say something, and then we leave, and we go out and hang out that night. So the next day, we come into school, and there's a piece of paper on the wall, and there's a bunch of kids gathered around looking for their name, and it was the, you know, whoever got their parts for the show. And so, of course, Jason goes up and looks for his name, and he's like, oh, look at that, man, I got this part, that's so cool, Ah And so I go, and I'm looking at the bottom for my name, and I'm like going up, and I don't even see my name, and I'm like, I was really bad, (laughs) I mean, I was terrible, right? And I keep going up, and I keep going up, and then I get to the top line where the lead role is, and there's J.P. O'Connor. The lead role in the school play. And I'm saying, what? I went down to the director's office and I said, man, you're crazy. Look at me. Do I look like material for a school play? It was a joke. Me and my buddy, we just did it as a joke. I'm not, I don't, never intended on actually doing anything or showing up for anything. And, you know, I guess this is a note for adults because we don't necessarily think this way. But, um, you know, kids in general do not believe in themselves. And this adult believed in me, and it changed my life. Because he said, you are special. You're talented. You know, behind all these walls that you have, there's something there, raw material for something amazing. You can sing. You have stage presence. You know, you could be somebody. And he said, but I'm not taking you unless you clean yourself up. No more getting in trouble. No more partying. You have to commit to this. It's going to be practice every single night. You're going to have to mem- memorize 100 pages of lines. You know, this is a big deal. You're going to have to memorize songs. You're going to have to practice. You're going to have to learn how to dance and juggle. And there was this whole thing. The show was uh, uh, based upon the life of Phineas Taylor Barnum. And I was Barnum, of Bar- Barnum and Bailey's uh, Circus. And so I went home that night struggling. What to do? Should I join the play? Should I, should I not? I was wrestling inside of myself. I don't, I don't know, you know what I want to do. Why? Because I liked my lifestyle. I liked partying. But at the same time, what if I was really good at something? What if I was actually talented? Because I didn't believe I was talented. I thought that I was going to grow up to be a drug dealer. That literally, I thought I'm going to not make it through high school. I'm not going to pass. And I'm going to fail. And not being graduated, and I want to make money, I think I'll sell drugs. That's literally what I was thinking in my head I was going to do when I graduated from high school. And so I wrestle all night. I go to his office the next morning. I said, fine, I'll do it. I'll give you three months of my life. I won't get in trouble. I'll commit. I'll memorize the lines. And I did. For three months, I worked hard. I learned how to do everything I was supposed to do. I learned all my lines. I learned the songs, and the show was a huge hit. It was in the newspaper. People came out uh, and filled the auditorium. Uh, I would walk down the halls at high school, people high-fiving me. Adults knew my name and recognized me. I had to cut my hair for the show, cut it short. It was incredible. I'd never experienced anything like that. Um, My life completely changed. We started doing community theater and then local uh, local theater. My dad started doing theater with me. We were in the newspaper together doing South Pacific. We were in grass skirts and uh, sailor tops, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about, South Pacific? All right. That's an oldie but goodie. So, you know, here, here I am involved in theater, and I'm doing all this, and my coach comes up to me and says, you're graduated now. 
what are you thinking for your future? And I'm like, well, drug dealer isn't necessarily on the cards anymore, but I don't know what I'm going to do. And he said, why don't you go to Broadway? And I laughed. He says, you, you know, you, you're talented. I said, Broadway, are you serious? And you know me, I, I'm no, a nobody. He said, well, let's take you to New York, let's audition. I went to New York City, I auditioned for the American Musical Dramatic Academy, AMDA. Uh, thousands of kids audition for the school every year, they only accept 75. All the teachers at the school actually work on Broadway. My uh, dance instructor was the lead dancer in the show Cats, if anybody's ever heard of that. My drama coach was a teacher, um, a, a writer. He wrote scripts for off-Broadway shows. My uh, music teacher was an opera singer at the Metropolitan Opera. So, you know, you, you, if you go to the school, you get to be around talent. I also uh, was part of shows and went to shows and got free tickets to shows. I went to New York City. Uh, I auditioned, and I was accepted one of 75. It was incredible, an incredible experience. Uh, I remember when I was leaving, my dad put his arm around my shoulder and said, son, when you're rich and famous, I'm going to quit my job and live off your income. <laughs> I was somebody. I was no longer a nobody. And I go off to, uh, to Broadway, to New York City, and my teachers are telling me that I have talent, that I could be somebody, that I really have it. Now, maybe they said that to everybody, but from my experience, there was something happening in my life, and it was amazing. But I was having trouble finding a job. I needed money to eat, and I started getting hungry. And I decided, stupidly, of course, that if I just started selling a little bit of drugs on the side, I'd have some extra money so that I could eat, so I could continue my dream of Broadway. But when you start selling drugs, you start doing them, and when you're doing them, you don't sleep at night because you're partying and you're doing dumb things, and then you don't show up for classes in the morning, and then the director of the school comes to you and says, you're out of here. Before the first year was even finished, I was kicked out of school. I had to call my dad and say, Dad, you need to bring the truck and come pick me up and my stuff. I, I, I have no future here. I got kicked out. We put all my stuff in the back of the truck. My dad didn't say a word to me all the way home. When we got to the house in Connecticut, I found out that my mom had turned my room into a tea room. There was a couch and like a little table there with a tea set, but there was no room for me. And uh, I, I went down to the basement and all my stuff was in the cellar. Now, you know, Florida, you don't know probably cellars, but up north, cellars aren't terrible, but they aren't nice either. Uh, I threw a rug on the cement floor, I set up my bed, and that's literally where I was living. I was in the cellar of my life, not just physically, but also emotionally. I was suicidal, I was depressed, I thought about killing myself every day. I was doing drugs, I was working, and then I come home and do drugs until I fell asleep. I didn't have any friends, and it was my brother, Purple Mohawk, his name is Joel, four years younger than me, punk rocker, chains around his neck with a lock like Mr. T. He thought that was really cool. He would wear baggy clothes, and uh, he came downstairs and said, dude, man, you're messed up. And I'm thinking, you're messed up? Look in the mirror. And he said, I said, what are you talking about? And he says, you don't have any friends. You don't have a life. Every time I talk to you, you're talking about dying and killing yourself. You're doing drugs all the time. You don't have a future. He says, man, you need to go to church. I was like, what? I'd never been to church. Well, my grandmother took me a couple times when I was little, but not, not interested. In any ways, church is full of good people, and I'm not a good person. 
You see, that's the way churches are perceived by people out there. They think good people go to church. They have to become good before they can go to church. That's how they think. And so I was like, no, I'm not going to church, man. He says, I went to church. I said, what? I'm looking at my brother with his purple mohawk and Mr. T chains. And I'm like, you went to church? He's like, yeah, man, I went to church. And he says, I, well, I didn't go alone. I went with Peter. Peter was a bartender at a stripper place. And Darby, he was a punk rocker. He used to change his hair color every week, orange, pink, yellow, green. And he's like, yeah, I went with those guys. He said, you three guys, you hoodlums went to church, right? What kind of church would allow people like that? Let me ask that question again. What kind of church would accept people like that? Hopefully all of them, amen? But you see, me, being someone who knew nothing about church and had never read the Bible, didn't even know really what Jesus was, I was thinking, what kind of a church would allow bad people? I'd like to see a church like that. That sounds interesting. I said, tell them to pick me up on Sunday. And he said, no, man, they don't go to church on Sunday. They go to church on Saturday. I said, who cares? Didn't matter to me because I didn't know anything about God or church. I just wanted to go and see. So on Sabbath morning, these guys show up in their car, and I climb in the back seat, and the whole way to church, 30 minutes, all I hear is Jesus this and Jesus that. The Bible and Revelation and prophecy and the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast, whatever. They're just talking about all this stuff about the Bible. And man, I was reading in the Bible this morning, and praise the Lord. And, and I'm, I think that th this must be a cult. The very definition of cult, because these were my friends. I knew what kind of a bad people they were, but they were completely different. Dressed up in nice clothes, talking like nice people. I had no idea who they were. And I thought to myself, this is what I'm thinking in my brain, it's hypnotism, right? That's how they get you, just don't look them in the eyes. So literally, when I arrived at the church, I just said, I'm going to look at the ground, and I'm not going to look anybody in the eye the whole time. I'm just going to stare at the ground, and they won't get me if I don't look at them. Because I was so afraid of being sucked into a cult. So I show up at church, I got my eyes on the ground, I walk in the door, and the greeter that morning, her name was Betty Vinton, kind of a heavy-set lady, red rosy cheeks, she comes up and starts hugging me <laughs> in a bear hug. We're so happy you're here today. Welcome, pinching my cheeks. Look at you, young man. We're so excited. And then she goes over to the other two boys. Did you bring him? <laughs> Squeezes them too. Let me tell you, something amazing happens when adults love children, love young people. At the time, I was 19 years old, you know, come back from college. Um, but, but this woman, she loved me. And, you know, probably broke a rib squeezing me, but loved me. And it was something about it where all my armor fell off. When I walked into church that day, I don't remember the sermon, but I just remember people coming up to me and loving me and caring about me and asking me who I was and wanting to know more about them and introducing, I'm so glad you're here. It was an environment in that church that was contagious and it was transformative and it just got me inside. So after church, we go to this thing called potluck, which, you know, it's free food. It's weird, but it's free food, right? You don't complain. There was no meat at this, at this meal, but it was free. And being 19, and they let me go first, my plate was piled. I mean, I can eat, right? 19 years old. So I take my plate back, and my friends finally join me, and we're all sitting there filling our faces and eating. And I say, 
why do you guys go to church on Saturday? That did seem kind of weird to me. And I was just wondering about it. These guys pull out their Bibles. All of them, their Bibles on the table. And they start giving me a Bible study on why the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week and why it's Saturday. They didn't have a lesson. They didn't have notes. They didn't have cheat sheets. They knew it. It was incredible. And I was like, how do you guys know so much about the Bible? They said, we read it. <laughs> and I said, can I have one? And they're like, yeah, I'm, th- I'm sure we could find one around here somewhere. I'd never owned a Bible, and they gave me one. And I took it home, and I started reading it. I read and read from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First Corinthians, through the whole New Testament, eating it. I was so interested in the story. I never read the Bible. It was so cool. And I read and I read and I read and I read. And I went to, on Wednesday night, I went to Peter's house because he had a small group Bible study in his home. And we ate and we fellowshiped and we read the Bible. And the first elder drove all the way to his house and had a Bible study in his home. And in that Bible study, that's where I was discipled and mentored. And so we spent hours there, and the, and the first elder spent until late in the night. I think he left around 9.30 or something like that from his house. It was amazing. And I read and read and read, and then on Friday night, I told the guys, hey, look, I want to go to church with you again on Saturday morning, but I have this party on Friday night that I really need to go to. One of my friends from work was leaving work, and it was a going-away party. I really needed to go, right? Needed to. So I go to the party, and I drink too much and do a bunch of drugs, and I end up blacking out and vomiting on myself on the floor. And that's it for me. I'm not going to church, right? Because there's no way that I would wake up in the morning. They were going to pick me up at 9 a.m. so we could be on time for Sabbath school. There's no way that I would be awake at 9 a.m. after a night like that when I've been up to God knows what time, and I, I am blacked out on the floor, right? I don't usually wake up till 1 or 2 in the afternoon on a binge like that. 8.45 my eyes open. Vomit on my face and shirt. I'm on the floor of the living room. They just left me there. That's the kind of friends that you have when you're in the world. They don't care about you. I wake up, I look around, I find a clock, and I see 8.45. And I just start crying, bawling, tears coming out of my eyes, the kind of crying (laughs) with the snot coming out of your nose, crying. And I get on my knees And for the first time, I pray to God with all my heart. And I say, God, I hate my life. I don't want to be like this. You have to change me. You have to make me new. You need to transform me. You need to change my life. I can't do it. I've tried to stop. I've tried to be different. And every time I try, I fall back into it. If I'm really going to change, if I'm really going to be different, it has to be you. It has to be a miracle. And I'm crying out, I want you in my life. If you're real, where are you? Come into my heart now. And as I'm praying... I felt God's presence. Now, I'm not saying everybody's going to feel God's presence. Sometimes you don't feel it. But for me, God decided he would give me something extra. I felt his presence come upon me. I felt the Holy Spirit come into my life. And I felt the burden of my sin wash away. I was light as a feather. I felt no no guilt, no shame. My sins had been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ in that moment. I got up from the floor, and I went into the bathroom, and I turned on the water, wiping vomit off of my hair and off of my shirt, right? And, oh, I got to brush my teeth. There's somebody's toothbrush, brush my teeth. Oh, I stink. I stink cologne because I didn't even bring a bag to that party. I don't know what I was thinking. I was 19. 
And then I hear beep, beep, and I'm scared. Because these, this is churchy people, right? Everybody smells good and looks good. I look horrible. I smell terrible. Cologne doesn't cover it. I get into the back seat of the car, and I'm just huddled there, afraid they're going to look at me or smell me or ask me. But, you know, they're talking about Jesus the whole way to church. They're just excited about the Lord and God this and, they, you know, the Bible and blah, all the way to church. We get to church, and you know what I'm thinking as we get close? I'm like, please don't let it be that lady. I don't want her to see me like this because I should be better, right? I went to church one day. I can't come back looking like this. They're going to think this guy's a loser. And I get to the door, and sure enough, there she was. There was no getting by her. She was that kind of greeter. I get in the door, and she hugs me. Doesn't say anything about the way I smelled or looked. She just hugs me and says how happy she was that I came back. And then I get into church and everybody's coming up to me like I'm family, like I'm somebody important, that I'm somebody special, and they're hugging me and loving me. It was incredible. Now, I can't tell you that my life would be different if they hadn't treated me that way, but it certainly didn't hurt because the love that they showed told me what kind of a church I wanted to be a part of. I wanted to be part of the Seventh-day Adventist church. People ask me, why are you a Seventh-day Adventist? It's because I found Jesus and they loved me. Ah, I, you know, you could say it's because of the, sa the Sabbath or the state of the dead. I mean, sure, you can say it's the doctrine. But the real reason why we're Seventh-day Adventists is because of Jesus. Because he changed our lives. Because we're Christians. Because we're saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. It's the transforming power of love. The love of God and the love of others. That's why we're here. That's why I'm here today. I'm a pastor today because they loved me and because they didn't care the way I looked or smelled. Yeah, that's the kind of churches that we need, right? Someday, you know, a JP is going to walk through that door. They're going to look terrible. But you're going to have the opportunity for the kingdom of God to love somebody. And you never know what their life's going to become. Don't look at them like a bum or a smelly person. You don't know what they're going to be. You don't know God's plan for their life. They loved me. And I think, and this is just me, but all of the people that love me, they get all the stars in my crown for all the people that I've been able to share the gospel with. I believe they get those stars too because I wouldn't be here without them. What, what we do matters. What kind of church we are matters. So, I want to just have a prayer this morning with you. And maybe a, just a simple invitation to be what God wants you to be. To be all that God wants you to be. You might think, ah, oh, man, you know, that would never happen at such and such a church because, you know, they're not, you are the church. It's not somebody else. It's you. Every one of you are the church. That's why just making the decision on your own, I'm going to love people, I'm going to be different, you're making a difference for the kingdom of God, amen? Close your eyes with me and let's just have a prayer. Heavenly Father, there's someone here today that wants to be your servant, that wants to be your hands and feet, that wants to love like you love. I just pray, Lord, that they would raise their hand to heaven right now. Everybody's eyes are closed, nobody's going to know who's raising their hand, but if they want to be your hands and feet, if they want to be your blessing to the world, just... Lord, see their hands, see their heart, and 
and cause them, Lord, to just come alive for you, to see people around, see the hurting, see the broken, see the wounded, see the smelly people, and help them to love like you loved. In Jesus' name, amen.